Today, if you log on to the internet, just how safe are you from radicalization? Extremist groups are by no means a new phenomenon, but the internet has radically changed the way these groups operate, turbocharging their ability to target and recruit susceptible people and advance dangerous ideas and sometimes provoke murderous actions. In a town east of Frankfurt, at least 10 people were killed when a gunman went on a shooting rampage. Officials also say the 43-year-old suspect had deep-rooted racist views. And in a year when America heads to the polls, are any of our democratic elections immune to foreign interference? I was told that was happening. I, I was told a week ago, they said, you know, they're trying to start a rumor that Putin wants to make sure I get elected. These people are crazy. Already, AI is learning how to write convincing newspaper articles and books, generate pictures of people that don't exist, manipulate faces in real time. So every day, the potential for chaos and extremism grows. So as technology becomes more sophisticated, how do we safeguard ourselves and our democratic institutions from this existential threat? Welcome back to Polarize, the podcast in the RSA that's all about the big divides in our politics and culture and how to fix them. Later, I'll be speaking to Archon Fung, who is Professor of Citizenship and Self-Government at the Harvard Kennedy School, who recently gave a talk at the RSA about democracy in the digital public sphere. Archon offered some solutions to big tech's influence on our democracies, but I did wonder if there's a danger when we blame technology for our democratic woes. Do we then absolve ourselves of our responsibility to be proactive democratic citizens? I really believe that because in the 20th century mass media public sphere, there were very few speakers and they were responsible journalists and editors. And what the early hopeful, not quite utopians, but people like me who are hopeful about the democratic effects of the internet early on in the in the 90s say what we got wrong is we underestimated how bad so much individual behavior could be on the internet normally for polarized i'm joined by my partner in crime ian leslie but he's unavailable uh, today and in some ways i have to say although i'll miss ian I, i'm almost a little bit pleased because it means i have got to myself our guest today julia ebner who's the author of going dark the secret social lives of extremists. Hello, Julia. Hello, I'm a researcher at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which focuses mainly on, on violent extremism, terrorism, but also on other dynamics that drive polarization, for example, disinformation and reciprocal or accumulative extremism. So that's a big topic. Why on earth did you choose to put your energies into something as dark and difficult and dangerous, actually, is this? That's a good question. To be honest, it was more of a coincidence. I, I started off by looking uh, at the jihadist spectrum. Right now, I focus, I would say, even more on far-right extremism and neo-Nazi ideologies. But I started when ISIS was pretty much at the height of their power, when they were recruiting uh, jihadist fighters from across Europe and North America. And then I could see a backlash basically coming from the far Right, and from communities that were increasingly fearful of jihadist attacks and where that created more of an anti-Muslim mobilization and hatred against minorities. So let's explore. I don't want to take people away from reading the book. You have to read this book. It's a, it's, it's a very important book. It's incredibly readable. 
Uh, I do want to explore some of these particular events and occasions where you were posing to have a different identity in order to be able to understand what was going on in these groups. Uh, so actually, one of the first accounts in the book um, was particularly interesting to me because I live in Clapham. A lot of it took place in Brixton, in a cafe in Brixton, in a Airbnb in Brixton. So that was you working with a group that's kind of at the borderline between the right-wing extremes and the mainstream. That's kind of interesting that you wanted to start there in this kind of this zone, which wasn't absolutely clear whether we're talking about legitimate or extreme politics. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a group that has essentially rebranded some of the old national social and fascist ideologies and has tried to become more mainstreamed. They're essentially spreading white nationalist ideas based on a conspiracy theory called the Great Replacement, which was also referenced by the recent terrorist attackers in New Zealand, but also in the US and in, in Germany. Uh, it's the idea that basically uh, white European populations are gradually being wiped out and replaced by migrant populations. I joined this group Especially when I could see that they were trying to set up a branch in the UK and Ireland, I saw an opportunity. So I basically posed as a as an Austrian exchange student in London to be recruited into their new London branch. Generation identity is that right? Was that, is that exactly. Yeah, so yeah. it's generation identity. Yeah. yeah. They would be different from a kind of white supremacist movement, or they would say they were different because they wouldn't say necessarily that white people are better. They would just say, look, it's much better for us to all have our own cultures and to to develop separately. Yeah, they would frame it in a very... I think they use the euphemism of ethnopluralism, which is essentially ethnic separatism. They see it as desirable to have uh, a society where different um, ethnic communities are not mixing. They especially view the problem of, of interracial mixing as key to, to demographic change, which they are very much afraid of, as the Great Replacement Theory kind of poses that existential threat, according to them, to the white European race. We have, or perhaps it's just people of my age, I have a kind of view of right-wing extremists and I kind of imagine them as being shaven-headed, overweight, kind of rather unattractive uh, individuals that wouldn't really attract anybody other than people like them. Now, th here we're talking generational identity. Very different. These, are, these people are young, they're hip, they're kind of into mainstream uh, culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these guys are have a very clear strategy of branding. Actually, it's quite a standardized branding strategy across the whole of Europe. They know that they want, they have to be hip and relatively young and good looking in order to appeal to, to members, especially from well-educated backgrounds, from more like young subcultures, especially youth online subcultures. Those are their main target audiences for the recruitment campaigns. And they know that. And they know that they're even tapping into some of the hipster culture elements. They're wearing clothes. So this kind of resonates a bit with the kind of alt-right phenomenon in America as well, isn't it? And yeah, exactly. They're kind of the, the equivalent to the alt-right, but in Europe. Let's move on to a second example, which is where you go back to where you started all this from, which is looking at jihadi groups. And there you entered a group of women who are part of kind of extreme Islamic groups. Tell us about that group. The women-only group, that was a, a chat group, which was ISIS, made up of ISIS sympathizers, but female-only sympathizers. And it was interesting because there were elements of in the group that almost made it look like a self-help or counseling forum, where women were also exchanging ideas about how to be a good bride to a jihadist fighter, how to deal with the loss of a husband that might have died in, um, in the Syrian war. 
it was almost a form that became where the group dynamics became more important than the ideological indoctrination. There was a very subtle form of ideological indoctrination as well. And they did, of course, glorify some of the terrorist attacks. Um, I was in the group when terrorist attacks happened in Indonesia, where actually they were sharing the news before even the, the media shared the news. But it was it was almost similar to, to the, the misogynist group that I joined, which is more part of the old right, in that the, the form of communication and, and socialization between these women was key in holding members within that community. It was a key motivator and incentive for them to stay within that group, I would say. But again, I think a view we tend to have extremists is that, is that they're, they're rigid, they're very inflexible. And that's one of the reasons why we don't need to worry too much about them, because, you know, that inflexibility in their thinking and their organizing. But one of the things I, I noticed in that chapter is that the extremist Islamic movement is now starting to change its view towards women. There's going to be a recognition that, you know, we've read about ISIS and we kind of assume that, that women's position in that movement is entirely kind of suppressed and that they really have no role at all apart from following orders. But what you noticed was that actually there has been a kind of pragmatic recognition that women can be useful recruits and that they can play a role beyond simply, for example, being martyred. Yeah, absolutely. That's That's been changing, especially in the last few years, um, also among ISIS, which initially was sticking to very traditional ultra-conservative views of women and had very misogynist views, and still does, of course. But they do instrumentalize women because they see them as, as key in helping, not just with publicity. That's something they did from the very beginning onwards and being seen as as parts, of course, of the Islamic State, which framed itself as a state, so women were needed there from that perspective, but where they also endorse female fighters and where they endorse women to stand really in the front lines also of violent action and of terrorist attacks. That's an interesting change. We've seen that previously in other jihadist movements that did that for, for tactical purposes because it's easier sometimes to... Um, I actually wrote my master thesis about female suicide bombers, which got me into the topic. Boko Haram, of course, for example, made use of a lot of female suicide bombers because they were uh, less suspicious to the security forces because there were some advantages to that. But now both actually across the ideological spectrum, but especially on the jihadist and on the far right side, we see that women are incre increasingly present, not just in the communication campaigns where they might lend more credibility to the movement, but also sometimes in violent action. You know, understandably, we kind of other these movements because, you know, of the things that they do and the things that they stand for. But the danger is, again, we can become complacent because we assume that they have a particular form. But that form will evolve and develop pragmatically in pursuit of their ultimate objectives. Yeah, it's a very fluid space. And it's also that's also why it's so important to constantly monitor them in real time, because especially with these uh, with these ISIS groups and also with some of the alt-right groups, they're so quick in changing their strategies. It's almost, um, if you don't watch them for a week, they might have changed the channel, they might have changed their communication strategy. They might even have plotted an attack in the meantime or created their own app, kind of encrypted app to communicate under the radar of the security forces. So it's really important to keep track, especially of the, the violence inciting networks. And that's one of the dangers also when accounts are being removed from the more mainstream platforms that these then go into the darker corners of the Internet and might develop very quickly a network, an international network of mobilization. So let's move now to a very different example. Well, in one way, it's similar because it was all women, but it's a very different position politically, which is the kind of networks of alt-right women 
espousing a view of women which feels like a kind of pre-feminist view of women, but also an anti-feminist view. And I think you found that particularly personally challenging, actually, when you were involved in those conversations, partly because you recognised some of the things which had made these women feel unhappy and, and want to be bonded in this way. It was absolutely terrifying to be... Um, to be almost at the verge of, for the first time, to be honest, of buying into some of these narratives myself, because they were touching on topics that I could actually uh, emotionally identify with that really mattered to me, whereas in the jihadist networks, also in the neo-Nazi channels, I never felt like that. But here, because it was framed almost again as a as a counseling forum for women, dealing with topics like double burdens in modern society that women are facing, or the, the downsides of the hookup culture of online dating, yeah, of a more fast-paced life and what our roles as women, how that has changed very quickly to some extent. And I think it was interesting to, and also, yeah, quite scary to see how many women from different backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, even different age groups were drawn into these networks. I could completely see some of these recruiters, the female recruiters were really filling a vacuum of issues that aren't currently being addressed or also related to how our identities have changed, how family systems have changed. And they offered an easy solution to some of the problems that women encountered. Essentially, a lot of the women were looking for some kind of uh, love or recognition or were afraid of not finding a romantic partner. And they offered an easy solution of going back to a distant past of the 1950s or even further back where women didn't have any rights but were focusing purely on, on, on the role that society gave to them. And the views ranged from those really ultra-conservative uh, ideologies all the way to also endorsement of domestic violence to the more extreme sides of, of that community. And that's the real danger that um, they were also feeding into the bigger so-called manosphere movement, which is uh, a misogynist movement made up of different subcultures, but where you have the incels, the so-called incels movement, involuntary celibates that also inspired terrorist attacks against women in the past. Yeah, I found it really uh, shocking to see how quickly people from any backgrounds could be attracted by that movement. What that really hit home for me is that we have to understand extremism not just as a political phenomenon, but as a sociological and a psychological and a cultural phenomenon. And uh, yes, it needs to be challenged in multiple ways, and we'll come on to that later. But to engage with these women, you'd have to understand the psychological and sociological background that had led them to to want to hang out with other women and to accept kind of submissiveness as an identity that was better than the others, alter, uh, others on offer. Absolutely. And there were really clear patterns in the, the sociological or psychological undercurrents that I observed in these different movements. But it's still it would be so important to have a very nuanced approach that is tailored to these different subcultures that we're seeing take shape in online spaces. Because often when we talk about online radicalization, it's as if this was a black box phenomenon where um, all of a sudden someone becomes radical. And we also have a very tech-focused approach to it. So that was partly the goal of the book was also to show how many human and social dimensions there are, even if we talk about online spaces. And then finally, if that was the place that you were most kind of psychologically challenged, possibly the place where you felt most physically threatened was when you went to a kind of neo-Nazi rock concert or festival. Tell us about that. 
That was indeed one of the most, I think, in terms of physical threat, uh, also the most realistic, uh, yeah, realistic threat of being harmed or being potentially um, attacked by one of the neo-Nazis. Because I went to this, um, it's the biggest European rock and mixed martial arts neo-Nazi festival that took place at the border of Germany and Poland. And I basically was standing in the queue with the others pretending to be one of the, the neo-Nazi participants. And when I entered, it was only then that I thought, oh, maybe I've gone too far here. Maybe I should not have come here because there was police presence. But I also knew that quite a lot of the participants had a criminal record that they might have been able to smuggle in knives that has happened in the past and or that they might otherwise just be really good since they're at, at mixed martial arts and really good at punching you in the face. So I was a bit concerned of being exposed in that moment and probably more so than in either the online scenarios or in the case of sitting in an Airbnb with the white nationalists of Generation Identity where I knew that branding and their reputation was too important for them to really uh, resort to violent means. There is a kind of unholy alliance on the extreme right between different kinds of perspectives, kind of, you know, you've got your alt-right libertarians and then you've got your kind of highly socially conservative kind of nationalists. And I was kind of contrasting this with parts of the left at the moment. They kind of seem to be able to hang together a lot of the time. We used to be able to rely on the extreme right to fall out all the time. But yet they seem to find a way often to kind of rub along together despite these tensions and contradictions. Yes, I'd say that they are often overcoming ideological differences and are joining forces on an international level, um, also crossing geographic boundaries uh, because they see the, the impact they can have by doing that. Because they know that um, in strategically important events, they know that working together uh, can have more of an impact. And so you saw in the Charlottesville rally, for example, in 2017 in the U.S., There were not only neo-Nazis present at the rally, but you could see anti-Semitic neo-Nazis rubbing shoulders with the more the counter-jihadists who might sometimes even have pro-Zionist views and not be anti-Semitic at all. Or you could see paleo-conservative far-right extremists walking next to ultra-libertarian far-right extremists who have def very different views on how society should work, but they have lowest common denominator, and that's the hatred towards Muslims, towards migrants, and towards the liberal left. We've discussed on this program before a research which suggests that quite a high proportion of certainly the people who share hateful, fake news online are animated not by political ideology, but just by the desire to cause chaos. You know, part of your book is around uh, trolls and others on the internet. And some of this is organized and ideological, but quite a lot of it is, and it's a really strange word to use in the, in the context of extreme right activity, but be playful almost. It's interesting because I would say that there is a divide between those that see chaos as the end of their action and those that use chaos as a tactic to have political impact. But some of the far-right extremist movements have definitely tapped into the, the earlier internet subcultures that were present on the 4chan image boards where you could see trolling cultures emerge in the early 2000s that were staging campaigns purely for the sake of creating chaos, of uh, triggering or provoking people on the internet, of disturbing conversations. But it was more for the sake of fun and entertainment and to, to break taboos. And then this, these communities have been slowly more politicized and also more radicalized. And there are 
definitely also some far-right extremist groups and neo-Nazi groups that have used the tactic of creating chaos. And hacking also just to, just to break systems down and also to exactly. demoralize the authorities and citizens with a sense of, actually, you're not in a world that's safe, you're not in a world that's secure. Yeah, absolutely, to demoralize political opponents, but also to, to change the power dynamics because, of course, fringe groups are always in a inferior power position and they have to create chaos in order to to even provoke political change. And that's also a strategy that they have in common with jihadist movements, where the strategy of the management of savagery is the key strategy that was even listed in the Al-Qaeda manuals, where they stage even terrorist attacks for the sake of provoking that an unforeseeable chain of reactions, complete chaos and destabilize our democracies in order to, in the end, then benefit from those power changes. So had we been talking about this, I don't know, 15 years ago, Julia, we would have been able, I think, to say, well, this is worrying and difficult. But in a sense, there is still a clear distinction between this world, this dark and shadowy and violent and extreme world and, you know, mainstream politics and that they, within the mainstream politics, there is a consensus um, of opposition to these forms of extremism, whether it's on the left or the right or jihadi or whatever. But of course, that was before the rise of populist, the populist right. And it's interesting in your book that um, I think when you're at that rock festival, for example, that people are kind of saying, well, look, we should back Trump, not unconditionally, but you know, in the end, Trump is a good opportunity for us to be able to expand. What do you see as being the relationship between the extreme and potentially violent right and the populist right, the mainstream populist right? There's a dynamic that works in both ways. On the one hand, the fact that we have increasingly far-right populist politicians in our parliaments um, and in power, in sometimes even heading governments. Sometimes using the same tropes that you found online in these extreme groups. Exactly. Sometimes also playing on the same conspiracy theories with, for example, in Germany, the Alternative for, uh, for Germany, using Euro the Eurabia conspiracy theory on their campaign posters before the, the European election last year. This is actually a conspiracy theory that's linked to the Great Replacement Theory, which I mentioned earlier. And um, you could also see politicians um, from across the world referencing conspiracy theories such as the Great Replacement idea, which is driving a lot of the far extremist movements in Europe and North America. Uh, or in North America, the equivalent would be the, the so-called white genocide idea. Some of the far-right movements have definitely felt like this has lent them more legitimacy. This has justified their actions. And on the other way, the, uh, the far-right populist parties and politicians also know that by sometimes flirting with these audiences, with these very extreme fringes, they can, of course, also galvanize more people in participating in slick online campaigns because that's essentially what um, what has happened in the run-up to the last US election and also to some of the, the elections in Europe that some of these fringe neo-Nazi trolling armies or ultra-right trolling armies have been running very uh, sophisticated online campaigns using memes and satirical content to mainstream their fringe views and also to mainstream fears that then these populist politicians are able to tap into. Increasingly, we also saw European politicians, for example, using some of these subculture references in their language, but also even in their profile pictures that they use on social media and using that for their campaigns. So one of the values, I think, of your book is to help us understand the components of some of these kind of narratives. Because then, as you say, you can see them in extreme and racist and violent narratives, but you can also see them echoed in more mainstream narratives. So 
kind of a dystopic vision that that, that unless we do something, everything's going to going to fall apart. The kind of notion of purity and impurity uh, as well. Tell us a bit more about about these kind of recurrent elements of the kind of far right narrative. Most of the recurring elements are around the topic of white identity among far right extremist movements. This idea that white European identity is threatened by a form of impurity, whether that's in the form of migration or whether that's in the form of the higher birth rates of already existing migrant communities within a country, that's something that, that has been feeding that idea. And they then also combine it often, quite often with other layers of anti-liberalism, where they also blame, for example, the three waves of feminism for reducing birth rates of the European native populations by introducing pro-abortion rights or pro-LGBT rights, that that has been driving uh, or has been reducing the birth rates. There's also an element of crisis, isn't there, in these stories, a kind of sense of an, an almost sometimes pessimism, which you see in the things, the statements that are left behind by some of the people who've committed terrorist atrocities is this kind of story of, look, you know, at any moment our civilization is going to collapse so anything is justified. Absolutely. There's often that element of apocalyptic um, vision of the future or of an existential threat which needs to be countered by some kind of proactive action. And that's that's the big danger of some of these ideologies, especially accelerationism, the idea that we need to speed up that, that process. We're approaching... A, kind of final race war or war of cultures or religions and by uh, launching terrorist attacks now that's the only way of speeding up that dynamic uh, without losing the end game in a sense and that's a very dangerous thought because that essentially then has been driving a lot of the terrorist attacks in the last few years and months. And that's a link also into chaos because in a sense if you feel we're approaching this apocalyptic moment then anything is better than, than continuing down that path. What should we do about this Julie? I mean I have to say, whilst it is a fascinating book and I encourage anyone to read it, you should read it. It's kind of important to understand this stuff. It isn't a very cheerful book, to be honest. I mean, you do end up with 10 things that we should do. But my sense is that you don't think there's a, sing there's a single response to this. Just kind of cracking down online isn't going to do it. Trying simply to separate out extreme right from populist legitimate right isn't going to do it. But it's a multifaceted response that we need, but that starts from a proper understanding of the phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. It's too complex, really, to be countered or tackled with one a one-dimensional approach. And there is also we also definitely need a lot more international cooperation because that's also what I tried to show in the book. There are so many international links between UK groups and groups um, across Europe, across North America, and even across other parts of the world. To be honest, I'm quite pessimistic in the short run, and I think that also comes through with the book, but I am optimistic in the medium and long run. And the, the solutions, the different solutions that I provide in the last chapter, some of these really innovative initiatives can be used as a starting point and can be used as inspiration for future projects. I think I love we're the story still of the in the elves. Tell us about the elves. Yeah, the, that, was a, that was the one moment in the book I started smiling. <laughs> I do also really like the, the Baltic elves. So the Baltic elves are countering the Russian trolls and countering Russian disinformation. Voluntary activists um, in Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia who spent their spare time countering and debunking Russian disinformation. I think it's quite an inspiring model, not just for disinformation, but also for countering other forms of extreme campaigns, for example, intimidation campaigns. There are also a few initiatives, for example, the initiative I Am Here, which also have, has offshoots in Germany and in Sweden 
where they counter harassment and hate campaigns and, for example, would post positive comments in the, the news comment sections where you have a high concentration of really vile anti-minority hatred. I'm going to ask you one last question, and this maybe we've been agreeing about everything and I'm lost in admiration for your work, but maybe we'll disagree about this. Do you think that the left, and particularly the kind of obsession in large parts of the left with identity politics, is helpful to all of this? It feels to me as though, on the one hand, if I was on the alt-right or the extreme, I would love seeing people on the left fighting over trans issues, for example. It's just enormous scope to cause chaos and to increase kind of divisions uh, amongst people on the centre-left and far-left. But also that a lot of this discourse on the left is so alienating to ordinary working class people, for example. It just is a completely different kind of world that actually that looks like, even if it's driven fundamentally by the kind of liberal concerns about human freedom or whatever, it looks like extremism to people who aren't involved in those worlds. So do you think that left discourses at the moment are kind of making some of this more difficult? It's a very tricky question, but I do agree that um, we've been observing that there is a very strong positive effect that that feeds into some of the narratives, into some of the conspiracy theories, into some of the frustrations that are then exploited by the far right. It's a very similar form of cumulative extremism or reciprocal radicalization, as we can also see jihadist actions sometimes play into the hands of the far right extremists and vice versa. That we also see that between, I'd say, between mostly between the far left and the far right, where um, they kind of feed off one another and where the, the high degrees of polarization just really help the fringes, most of all. This very strong focus on identity politics in general is something that is not helpful with finding solutions to the problems because they create, or identity politics always, of course, create more gaps and differences rather than forming bridges. And I think what we have to do now is find the commonalities on a, on a human level among the most extremes of extremists to find bridges as starting points for any kind of de-radicalization or intervention program. Going Dark, The Secret Social Lives of Extremists by Julie Ebner is available now and I encourage anyone to read it. If you don't read it, there's quite a lot of stuff that is going on that you don't really know about and you do need to know about it. Julia, thank you for writing the book and thank you for joining us today. One of the issues, Julia, that you raise in your book is the role of technology companies in countering extremism online. And this issue, the relationship, the responsibility of technology companies to democracy and to the pressures on our democracy, I discussed with a recent visitor to the RSA, Arkon Fung, who is Professor of Citizenship and Self-Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. He was talking at the RSA about democracy and the digital public sphere. In this moment, when we notice so many bad effects of social media upon democracy, there's a temptation to romanticize the mass media era, uh, which had some good things about it for democracy, but also had some serious weaknesses as well. So if you look at the current internet, I do believe that it's much easier for dissident voices to express themselves and be heard. I think that social movements like Occupy and Me Too and Black Lives Matter would have had a much more difficult time gaining attention in the mass media era. But on the other hand, in the social media era, I think that there's a fair amount of well-justified criticism that 
that it encourages us to go into our own corners and we seek out information that confirms our prior views rather than engaging with people who disagree with us. And then also some of the ways that platform algorithms work to feed us information encourages that tendency. And so there's much less talking across lines than perhaps would be better for democracy. And so what do you think are the necessary reforms or changes in our norms or in regulation that could help to make the digital sphere something which contributes to our democracy rather than drives kind of political polarization? Yes. Well, I think in order to solve this huge, huge problem, it's really a all-hands-on-deck kind of situation. I think that there need to be regulatory actions from government, there needs to be social pressure and social responsibility, and there also needs to be a fair amount of corporate social responsibility from the large platforms that operate so much of our social media life. And so if I could wave a wand, I would wish for there to be two or three hundred engineers at the large social media platforms, Facebook, but also Twitter, who dedicate themselves each day, every day to thinking about how can we design our platform to make it support democracy and create the informational conditions for a successful democracy rather than the platforms taking a little bit more of a hands-off attitude and largely a, a stance of indifference to how democracy fares. I think democracy needs the platforms to support democratic activities rather than undermine them or be indifferent to them. I think you also want to say, don't you, that we have, we as citizens have to take some responsibility as well. That there's a danger here that in blaming technology for our democratic woes, we absolve ourselves of our responsibility to be good democratic citizens. Yes, I, uh, we do say that in the paper, and I really believe that, because in the 20th century mass media public sphere, there were very few speakers, and they were responsible journalists and editors who were socialized with norms of civility and truth-seeking, and for the most part, although you know there were lapses, uh, the public sphere was filled with their messages of professional journalists. And what the early hopeful, not quite utopians, but people like me who were hopeful about the democratic effects of the internet early on in the, in the 90s say, what we got wrong is we underestimated how bad so much individual behavior could be on the internet. And going forward, I don't want a world in which communication is dominated by a small number of speakers anymore. I want a large number of speakers, hundreds of millions of speakers, but I want those speakers to be more democratically responsible. I want them to try to get things right, to get truth, to be civil in the sense that they make arguments and listen to each other, to be common good oriented in the sense that when they, uh, when we, not they, when we, you and I and, and hundreds of millions of other citizens out there engage on social media, whether it's posting things or liking things or amplifying things, I think we really need to take a step back and spend a minute thinking, well, is this post really true or does it make me just feel good about my own politics or my own sense of the world? Am I helping to create a more democratic society that can figure things out rather than expressing my anger or frustration or irritation? Am I taking conscious efforts to encounter 
and read views that I disagree with that make me uncomfortable. I think a successful democracy requires all of us as we engage in social media to take that higher level of civic responsibility. And it's a much higher level than as consumers of the BBC or large broadcasting than we were expected to have or needed to have in the long 20th century. I don't know if we can get there, but I do think that unless we can get to that level of civic responsibility, the way that social media and the public sphere works will not have very good effects for democratic governance. So I suspect the people listening to this will praise your idealism and and indeed believe that you're right that in a sense we as citizens have to take responsibility but worry about whether or not this is realistic. Is there anything you can point to, Arkan, that would give us some reason for hope that in the end people will say that they choose truth rather than fakeness, that they choose civility rather than hostility, that they choose compromise rather than polarisation? Point me to something to give me hope. Well, I think it's very, very early days yet. So one, one tiny example. I don't know if you have adolescent children. I do. And there's a, a popular online game in the United States called Fortnite. And primarily young adolescent boys play it. And they can be quite cruel to one another. I believe it's Fortnite that tried to make three platform changes that would change the behavior, that they would change the way that groups were formed, they would change the scoring system a little bit, and just from a few changes, a little bit of effort, they managed to decrease the toxic content very substantially, right? So that indicates, as a small example, if you try, from a platform design perspective, you can make gains. And my complaint now is that we're not trying hard enough. And from the individual perspective, I think it's early days. You know, when you walk down many parks in London or when you go to many pubs, your expected outcome is not a bar fight and is not to get mugged. Whereas in an early era, era, probably those likelihoods would have been higher. And we've developed social norms that regulate our behavior over some time to address this new context to make us more socially successful. And the internet, it is the early days of social media. And so we as individuals and as educators and as social institutions haven't yet articulated what the appropriate norms are, much less tried to socialize ourselves and each other into those norms of truth-seeking and civility and, and some sort of orientation toward the common good. Great. So some kind of combination of better regulation of these major companies, ethical software engineering and public educational responsibility. Yeah, that's a reason to hope. Arkon, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk. Uh, That's the end of this week's Polarised. We'll be back again in two weeks' time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do tell someone. And if you can, leave us a rating or review in your podcast app or a comment on the RSA YouTube channel where you'll be able to hear the latest edition of the podcast too. Polarised was presented by me, Matthew Taylor. Our producer was Craig Templeton-Smith. And we were brought to you, as always, by the RSA. RSA.